you would, please turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. Let's read together verses 1 through 14 of Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians 1, verse 1. Please follow along as I read. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven, and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Let me ask that we pray once again together. Let's pray. Father in heaven, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts uh, be unto the praise and glory of Christ. And may you be pleased to come now to open up your word to us and to impart wisdom and insight as we consider the truths contained therein. Make this time helpful for your people and good for those who are outside of Christ. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, it really is wonderful to be back um, with you all. We were away this past week, and Jenna and I have decided we don't like being away from Emmanuel. Uh, We don't enjoy it, and it's very special to see your faces, to be back together worshiping with you. And uh, Jenna and I were in uh, actually southern England this past week on vacation out there. Uh, It was actually the third time that that I've got to visit England. Uh, Twice, Jenna and I were able to go together, and once I actually went with with, uh, Zach last fall. And uh, I've, I've become something of an unapologetic Anglophile. Love England. I just think it's the most wonderful place in the world. And uh, one thing I love about England is that every time I go, every time I visit, these three visits now, uh, there's more beauty to see. There's more history to see. It just becomes so much more wonderful each time I visit it. And there are, are things that I've never seen before that I see each time that I go back. The first time we went to England, Jenna and I, last year in the spring, we were able to see places like London uh, and visit some of the landmarks there, the famous landmarks, and able to visit Oxford and Cambridge, those great intellectual centers full of rich history. Then on the second visit, it was all about church history. Uh, it was all about cathedrals and chapels and graveyards and different places associated with some of my heroes, men like Charles Spurgeon and, and John Newton and John Bunyan. And uh, I was just, just soaking it up and eating in the wonders of the history there in England. And now on this third visit, it was all about scones and tea. 
Uh, it was all about rolling hills and English countrysides and uh, seeing sheep. I had this fascination with sheep that Jenna kept teasing me about. But just, I just watched them for hours just over these rolling hills. It was gorgeous. Every time I go there, more wonders to see. I mean, this country is just gorgeous and beautiful. Well, what we're doing today is actually something like that. Uh, if, you've, if you've been with us the last few weeks, you know that we're seeking to study the book of Ephesians together. And we're going to spend three weeks in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 14. Uh, we're going to make three visits, if you will, to the land of Ephesians chapter 1. And my prayer has been that each time we visit Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 14 over these weeks, that we'll be more impressed with the beauty and the majesty and the glory of this text. Uh, it is one of the most wonderful, uh, thick, rich, doctrinal texts in all the Bible. Uh, it runs as one continuous sentence in the original language of 202 words. And it is full of some of the most glorious realities in all the Bible. Now we've already made our first visit to Ephesians chapter 1 verses 3 through 14. And on that first visit we saw some wonders. We considered every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus. Uh, we considered first of all... All the blessings that we have as God's people that are contained in Ephesians 1, 3 through 14. Uh, blessings like election and adoption and redemption and the forgiveness of sins and wisdom and insight and an inheritance and the sealing of the Holy Spirit, which we just sung about. But then we also considered, secondly, the fact that we have all these blessings, uh, not because God's just given us some sort of certificate of ownership to them, but we have them through what we call our union with Christ. Uh, I said a couple of weeks ago that whenever you see that phrase in the book of Ephesians, in Christ, or in the Beloved, or in Him, or through Him, that is usually referring to this great doctrine that we call union with Christ. And I made the point a couple of weeks ago that the only way that we as God's people enjoy the blessings of adoption and redemption and the forgiveness of sins is because we have been united to Jesus, and because those blessings are located in Jesus. He is the sphere in which all those blessings exist. I use the analogy of, of like a marriage. Uh, we talked about maybe a marriage back in, in Victorian times, that if you have uh, a woman who marries some very wealthy uh, English gentleman, perhaps uh, uh, she, she gets all of the wealth and the assets of that individual legally. But beyond that, she's now entered into relationship with him. She's one with him, and all his vast wealth has now become hers. Well, there's something I actually didn't say enough of last week, and that is that in our union with Christ... It's a two-way street. And being united to Jesus and being wed to Jesus and being attached to Jesus, it's not just that we have all of his assets, all these wonderful spiritual blessings, but it is that he takes all of our debts. Because I'm united to Jesus, my sin, my wrongdoing, and the penalty that is, is, is due to my sin, Jesus takes all of that from me. All of his debts become mine and all of his assets. It should be all of my debts become his and all of his assets become mine. The riches of his grace are ours in Christ through our union with him. And all of our sin and our death was transferred to him on the cross. And through our union with him, he has put our sin to death through his body on the tree. But it's not only that. It is that through our union with Christ, we as God's people have a new identity. If we are in Christ the most important identifier about us, the most definitive thing about our identity is that we belong to Jesus and are united to Him. It's not only the most important thing, the preeminent thing about us as God's people, it actually gives definition to every other identifier about us. And so if you're a mother, uh, you're not just a mom. You're a mom who is in Christ. If you're a dad, you're a dad who's in 
Christ. If you're a husband, you're a husband who's in Christ. And, and your responsibilities, according to Ephesians 5, are to love your wife through Christ as Christ loves the church. And your union with Christ gives definition to your relationship as a spouse. If you're someone who works as a doctor or a lawyer or a salesperson or someone in engineering, your union with Christ brings definition to your vocation. If you're someone who is diagnosed with a disease, if you have cancer, suffering with cancer is qualitatively different if it is suffered in union with Christ. If I belong to Jesus, the way in which I handle the trials in my life will be qualitatively different. Because my identity is in Jesus. It's not in my health. It's not in my wealth. It's not in my prosperity. It's not in my likability. It's not in my charisma. It's not in my family. Our identity is in Jesus. And our union with Christ brings definition to every other identifier that we can share about ourselves. Well, that's what we considered two weeks ago. And the last week we had a guest speaker, and now we return. Today we're making our second visit to the land of Ephesians 1, 3 through 14. And it's been my prayer this week that we would be more impressed with the wonders of this text, the glory of this text, and particularly the glory of the eternal plan of God that's revealed in this passage of God's Word. This morning we want to ask this question. Uh, What is the origin of these blessings? Two weeks ago, we saw what the blessings were, how it is that we come by them. It's through our union with Christ. Now we want to ask, but where do these blessings come from? How is it that a a sinner like me, someone who was formerly dead, a child of wrath, according to Ephesians 2, how is it that now I have these blessings? Where did they come from? What's the origin of our salvation? And that is indeed the title of this message, the origin of salvation. There's... Three places in the text, I think, that we see where this salvation comes from. These spiritual blessings have their origin. And we want to consider one after another. The first is this. Our salvation, these spiritual blessings that we enjoy as God's people, they originate with God's love. They originate, first of all, with God's love. Please look at Ephesians chapter 1, verses 4 and 5. Even as He chose us in Him... Before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Now this phrase, in love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has blessed us in the beloved. It's that last phrase in verse 4 into verse 5, in love, he predestined us. Now, depending on what translation of the Bible you're reading, uh, if it's not the ESV, it might say uh, we are holy and blameless before him in love, period. And then he predestined us to adoption as sons. Okay? And then some translations say we're to be holy and blameless before him, period. And then in love, he predestined us to adoption. Well, remember, uh, uh, those, those periods, those ends to the sentence are actually put in there by those who translated the scriptures, uh, mercifully so, because verses 3 through 14 actually run as one long sentence, and so it, I think it helps us chop the thing up a little bit. Uh, I'm just going to sum up sort of the discussions of the commentators. They go back and forth on where this phrase, in love, should be attached. Okay? Some will say that we should probably understand that phrase, in love, as being attached to that phrase, being holy and blameless. And the idea would be that our conduct as Christian people is characterized, is governed by love. And I want to tell you, that is certainly true. What is the summation of all the commandments according to Jesus? It's to love God and to love your neighbor. Love is the law's eyes. 1 Corinthians 13 says that if we don't have love, we have nothing. Love brings definition to our obedience. That is certainly true. Our conduct, our holiness, our blamelessness before God is to be characterized and governed by love. But I don't think that's the correct placement of this phrase. Though it would be true, 
I think as some commentators have argued, in love should be attached, as it is in the ESV, to this idea of God adopting us. I believe that's more in concert with the idea of the passage. And if you're more interested in that, I have some commentaries I can direct you to that make that case. We're going to take it this way, the way the ESV delivers it, and that is that in love, God has predestined us to himself to adoption as sons, which means the fact that we are in Christ, the fact that we've been adopted has its origin in the love of God, which to me is a profound thought. If in love, God predestined us to adoption as sons, that means that if you're in Christ, if you're a believer, that before the foundations of the world, God had you in mind. Specifically, personally, you in mind. And his thoughts toward you were love. Before the world began, God set his love on you. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons and daughters of God. His thoughts toward us were love. Before we had ever lived, before we had accrued any record, before we had ever shown up at church or believed on Christ, God set his love on us. Isn't that what 1 John 4 says? God is love, but not only that. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's where the love of God is revealed, which means, now track with me here, the love of God in your life, on your soul, is not based on your record or your performance. His love was set on you while you were not even born. When you had no righteousness to point to, when you had no good deeds to point to, he didn't decide, you know what, Uh, this individual, this man, this woman, this boy, this girl, uh, I've decided that they're just so likable, Um, I really could use them on my side, so I'm going to set my love on them and save them. No, his love for you, his personal, direct love towards you originated before the world began. He had you in mind, Christian. Isn't that a profound thought? Isn't that a wonderful thought? Think of these Ephesian Christians few weeks ago we considered the formation of the church at Ephesus it's contained in Acts chapter 18 through 20 I encourage you to be reading that as we're going through this series together Uh, in that sermon when we talked about the formation of the church we observed that so many of those who made up the Ephesian community the Ephesian church uh, were those who had uh, formerly worshipped idols they had served the goddess Artemis, and they had uh, perhaps visited Demetrius the silversmith and bought idols from him and filled their homes with altars to false gods. And perhaps some visited uh, those temple prostitutes that spent time down there at the temple. And moreover, there were some who apparently were practicing black magic. One of the signs of the great revival in Ephesus is that 50,000 pieces worth of silver and black magic books were burned as a result of the great work that God did in Ephesus. And so you would have an individual who perhaps lived his whole life in darkness, his whole life in perversion, his whole life in in serving false gods and idols and sleeping with temple prostitutes and being caught up in black magic and dark arts and things like that. And then one day this individual is in the hall of Tyrannus and there's a small group gathered around this very unimpressive looking individual. He goes to see what the commotion is all about. He learns that this man's name is Paul. And here's a message unlike anything he's ever heard. He knows about the Jews who are meeting down at the synagogue. He knows about that group of people. But here he's hearing about this particular Jew named Jesus of Nazareth. And Paul shows from the scriptures that this Jesus was the Christ, the Son of God. And in a wonderful way that perhaps you can't even explain. It's as if, as if blindness is taken away and scales fall from your eyes. And you observe that Jesus truly is God. That this Jewish man who came is the Christ and you believe the gospel. But you recognize very quickly... That if I am a believer and a follower of Jesus now, everything has to change. And so you burn your 
black magic books and you take down your temple shrines and you delete Demetrius the silversmith from your iPhone and you don't call him anymore about uh, getting some idols set up in your house and everything has changed now. And you're still processing, what does it mean? You're sort of decompressing some of your, your false pagan worship and you're trying to understand what it means to be in the church now and have a new identity in Christ. And then some seven years after that event, when the book of Ephesians is written, you see this phrase, in love, he predestined us. And you're just consumed with, could that really be so? All my life in sin, all those things I did when I was 16 and 17 and 18 and 21 and 25, all that life of darkness as a child of wrath, as someone who's dead in trespasses and sins, the Lord saw all of that. And yet, you're telling me that before I was even born, God set his love on me. What an amazing and profound idea. What that must have meant to the Ephesian Christians to know that despite the fact that they had walked in darkness for years, God had set his love on them. And the fact that they in time came to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ was simply the fulfillment of this purpose of love that God had begun before the foundations of the world. But now secondly... The second place where these blessings originate, where our salvation originates in the text, we find that our salvation originates with the grace of God. First of all, we saw the love of God. Now, secondly, the grace of God. And I direct you to verse 7. In Him, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. We have redemption. We have the blessings of the forgiveness of sins through, according to, the grace of God. The grace of the Lord Jesus. And these riches of His grace, He's lavished on us. And we use that word grace a lot. Okay? Some of us, those who uh, uh, began this church planning effort, we came from a church called Grace Church. Grace Reformed Baptist Church. Okay? Uh, grace is a word we use all the time. Do we understand what it means? You kids who are here, could you tell me what the word grace means? Would you know how to define that word? Well, well, grace, okay, kids, uh, is probably best understood, track with me here, as unearned favor. That's what grace is, unearned favor. If I show you favor, what am I doing? I'm showing you kindness. I'm showing you blessing. Well, grace is blessing and kindness and mercy and that's unearned. We didn't earn it, okay? So if, if I asked you to, to come to my house and mow my lawn, kids, if I said, would you come over and mow my lawn? really does need to be mowed badly now because we've been out of town for a little bit. But if I said, I'd like you to come mow my lawn, and I'll pay you $20 to do that, okay? I'm going to give you $20. You mow the lawn to my satisfaction. I will give you a nice, crisp, green $20 bill. So you come, mow my lawn, and you knock on the door and say, uh, Mr. DePrima, done the work. Can I have the $20? And I say, I'm more than happy to give you this $20. Thank you for for, for doing this for me. Now, is that grace? The answer is no, right? Yeah, that's that's not grace at all. See, you did the work. You earned the $20 bill, and I gave it to you. You did something for me, and because of what you did, because of your performance, because of how you did in mowing my lawn, I, I gave you reward. I gave you favor. I gave you a $20 bill. That's not grace at all. We call that quid pro quo, doing something uh, for something in return, okay? Uh, Well, grace works in a completely different way. If I just wanted to bless you, if I I came up to you kids and I said, you know what, I've been thinking about you and I I just wanted to bless you today. I got a gift for you. I gave you that gift and you were so happy and thankful. That would be grace. That would be a gracious act. You didn't do anything to earn it. It was just kindness. It was grace. It was unearned favor. 
Well, kids, you need to know this, okay? The Bible teaches that the salvation we have in Christ, these blessings that we're talking about, blessings like having our sins forgiven and being saved by God's grace and being adopted as his children, we didn't earn those things. They're the result of God's grace. It's unearned favor. And so the fact that we're saved from our sins and that we could have a hope of being with God in heaven forever in paradise, that's all a result, according to what Paul is saying here in this text, it's the result of God's grace, his unearned favor. Which means that we don't have salvation and forgiveness of our sins and heaven with God because of anything that we do. We have it through the grace of God. Now, some of us adults need to remember that. We especially need to remember that it's not just that we're saved by grace, but we are sustained in the faith by grace. It's not as though God saves us on one particular basis and maintains us on another. He doesn't say, I'm going to save you by grace, and I'm going to not look at your sins anymore, uh, but now you need to straighten up and act right. You need to get your act together. No, he continues to bless us and sustain us on the basis of grace. So the reason you can go to God today and pray to him and expect that he'll receive you through Christ and hear your prayers is on the basis of the riches of his grace, which he is still lavishing upon us in all wisdom and insight. He continues day by day to reveal his grace to us and to relate to us and operate with us, behave with us on the basis of his grace, unmerited, unearned favor. We read that these blessings that we receive as Christians, first of all, originate in the love of God. Secondly, we've seen they originate in God's grace. They're according to the riches of His grace, which are lavished upon us. But now thirdly, I want to spend a little more time here. This is the one that gets the most coverage in our text. Our salvation has its origin in the eternal purpose of God. The eternal purpose of God. It has its origin in God's love. That's true. It has its origin in God's grace. But what gets the most coverage in our text is this idea that we're saved because of the eternal purpose and plan of God. Let me direct you to a few verses in Ephesians chapter 1. Please look at verse 5. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. Here it is. According to the purpose of his will. Look at verse 9. He made known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. In Him we have obtained, verse 11, an inheritance, having been predestined, here it is again, according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will. Paul calls it the purpose of His will, the mystery of His will, the counsel of His will. He's talking about this great eternal purpose and plan of God, and it is that purpose from which all these blessings that we have, from which our salvation flows. The fact that men and women are saved, the fact that we have the blessings of adoption and redemption and the forgiveness of sins, those things originate in the eternal plan of God. God had a purpose to fulfill, and your salvation, your coming to Christ, your darkness to light story is a result of a plan, a purpose that began, that originated in the will of God before the foundations of the world. Three things I want to observe about this eternal purpose and plan of God. The first is this. The salvation of men and women. Listen to me here. The salvation of men and women is the result of the eternal purpose of God. The salvation of men and women is the result of the eternal 
purpose of God. I want to read from our Confession of Faith, the Abstract of Principles, paragraph 5, on election. We've gone on record about this. Election, which is another word for predestination. Election is God's eternal choice of some persons unto everlasting life. Not because of foreseen merit in them, but of his mercy in Christ, in consequence of which choice they are called, justified, and glorified. Salvation is the result of the purposes of God, of his will toward us. Now it's very common at this particular moment in history for people to assume that whether or not one comes to Christ for salvation is purely a result of personal choice. If God had his way, everyone would be saved, but he's waiting on men and women to choose to follow Christ. Thus salvation is understood to be the result of man's will. Okay, that is not what the Bible teaches. That is not what the Bible teaches. Salvation, the fact if you're a child of God, that you are a child of God, that you are in Christ, we understand from Ephesians chapter 1 and scores of other texts that salvation is the result of the purposes of God. It is His will, His determination to choose and to pursue and to save us. That is the thrust and the teaching of the Bible. The Bible teaches that salvation originates in the will of God. Salvation is the result of his determination to save men and women. He doesn't force them. He doesn't coerce them. Rather, he works within them to draw them to himself. He removes their spiritual blindness and draws their affections out to him such that they see the wickedness of their sins, see the love of God in Christ, and cry out to him in repentance and faith. And this is all the Bible teaches the result of God's will, his eternal purpose. That is the teaching of the Bible, summed up in our confession and definitely taught in our text this morning. But I want to ask, I think is a very important question, okay? Since it is true that salvation originates in the will of God, does the Bible teach that men and women are just robots waiting for God to act? Or does the Bible require men and women to make a decision to follow Christ? Does salvation involve the deliberate, conscious, volitional choices of men and women? The Bible's answer is a resounding yes. The Bible calls men and women everywhere to repent. The Bible calls men and women to believe. The Bible calls men and women to choose. The Bible calls men and women to decide. We must constantly hold before men and women the choice they have to make in following Jesus. Salvation involves deliberate, conscious, volitional choices to follow Christ. Make no mistake, each man and woman who has followed Christ has chosen to do so. And each man and woman who has rejected Christ has chosen to do so. Recognizing the truth that salvation is supremely the result of God's will in no way undermines the deliberate volitional choices of men and women. Rather, God accomplishes his will through working in the hearts of men and women to change their affections such that they choose to follow Christ. Our belief, our confidence, our trust in divine election and predestination should never lead us to conclude that we should no longer call men and women to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and choose to follow him. Every man, every woman, every boy, every girl is to choose this day who they shall serve. And though we believe in God's sovereignty and salvation, and know that salvation is all a work of God's grace and is a carrying out of the purposes of His will, we still ought to press people to come to Christ, 
to repent of their sins, to choose to follow Jesus, to align themselves with the God of the Bible. We have to call men and women to make that decision to repent and have faith and to follow Christ. And rather than seeking to remove the tension that these two doctrines create, the idea of God's sovereignty and man's responsibility, we submit ourselves to the Bible and say, Thus saith the Lord. And we will preach from this pulpit and we will maintain in this church that God in His sovereignty elects men and women to salvation. And yet at the same time, He calls on men and women to choose to follow Christ and to choose this day who they will serve. It is in every way appropriate to press our lost friends to make a decision to follow Christ. It's in every way appropriate to call upon our children to repent and believe and to follow the Lord Jesus. But in our efforts to call men and women to repentance and faith, we should never lose sight of the fact that the only way anyone will believe is if God in Christ acts to change that person's heart and draw him or her to himself. Salvation involves the decisions of men and women. And yet God must act. God must move. And if anyone is in Christ, it is a result of the eternal purpose of God. But now secondly, in terms of understanding this eternal purpose... Note this, the salvation of men and women is the result of a larger plan. Excuse me, is part of a larger plan. The salvation of men and women is part of a larger plan. The fact that men and women are saved is the result of a deliberate plan and purpose on the part of God. Salvation is the result of God's will, His good pleasure to save people from their sins. But the plan doesn't terminate or come to completion with the salvation of individuals. God has a further purpose in the salvation of these individuals. And it's recorded for us in verses 9 and 10. If you would look at that with me now. Chapter 1, verses 9 and 10. He made known to us the mystery of His will, according to His purpose which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time. Now what's the plan? What's the purpose? To unite all things in Him, things in heaven, things on earth. I said a couple of weeks ago, the great message of the book of Ephesians is that God has begun and is perfecting a cosmic work of reconciliation in Christ. Which means that it goes far beyond the salvation of any one individual person. God is doing a work of uniting all things in heaven and on earth to himself. He is reconciling the world to himself. He is reconciling people from all over the world to himself. God is uniting all things in Christ. The word here for unite... Uh, literally means to sum up. The idea is how a, a lawyer might sum up an argument, conclude an argument, draw everything to a climax. God is summing up all things in Christ. Everything in heaven and on earth is being reconciled to Him. He is the focal point. He is at the center of this purpose and plan of God. The salvation of these individuals who experience these profound spiritual blessings are to be to the glory of Christ He is the climax of the eternal purpose of God. He is the summation of redemptive history. What does Romans say, right? Romans 11, for from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be glory forever. Amen. Christ is the focal point of the redemptive plan of salvation. Christ is the climax of the eternal purpose of God. He is uniting all things, reconciling all things to Himself. And your salvation is a part of that. It's not the end of this whole great redemptive story. It is a part of that. The great end is that Christ would receive all glory. 
That he would receive praise from the lips of men and women from every tribe, tongue, and people and nation. And that the world, all things in heaven and on earth, everything in the cosmos would be reconciled, summed up, united in Christ. He is the climax. He is the focal point. He is the center of the eternal purpose of God. The salvation of men and women is not the end of all things. It is part of this larger issue of summing up all things in Christ. The glory of Christ is the purpose of the universe. It is the purpose of this redemptive plan. If you're a Christian, you weren't saved simply to yourself. You were saved to the glory of King Jesus. That's what this is all about. It's not just that you'd be eternally happy. It's that Christ would get the glory. You were saved personally, yes, but also as part of this larger work of redeeming a vast host made up of men and women from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. Christ died to win for himself an inheritance of nations. He died to make all things new, things in heaven, things on earth, and to reconcile these things to himself. That is why God sent his son into the world. That is the mystery of God's will. That is the climax of the purpose of God in Christ. God is doing a cosmic work of reconciliation through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Imagine what this would have meant, again, to the Ephesians. Our best estimates this time were that there were roughly 10 to 20,000 Christians in the world. Okay? I'm getting that from scholars, not from the Bible, okay? Who estimate around this time. 10 to 20,000 Christians. Remember we said that Ephesians was probably written in 62, 63 AD. 10 to 20,000 believers. How big was the world at that time? I don't know. But here are these people sitting in Ephesus. They're not impressive. As far as the world is concerned, they're just a very unimpressive sort of little sect of people that are worshiping this man. Very strange, very odd. And they're told that God is doing a cosmic work of reconciling all things to himself. What it takes is a faith to believe that, right? Well, advantage Paul, because he had seen the risen Christ, okay? He was sure that God was doing this work through the Lord Jesus. But at that time, it was such a small thing. It's a small little band of people in this small little corner of the world. And they're told that God is doing a work that will encompass all things in heaven and things on earth. Now, fast forward 1,955 years later to today. The world is full of people who call on the name of the Lord. Millions and millions of people. There are Christians who have gathered in China today. Christians who have gathered in Africa. Christians who have gathered in every single state in the United States. God is doing a work of reconciling all things to himself in Christ. He began it in eternity past. It came to expression in the Ephesian context in 62 AD. And it is going on today and it's happening right here in Emmanuel Church. God is doing a work of drawing men and women to himself through the Lord Jesus. And he is accomplishing his eternal purpose. What an amazing thing the Lord has done in the world. What an amazing thing the Lord did in Ephesus. What an amazing thing the Lord is doing in us. God is accomplishing his eternal purposes. But now thirdly, with respect to the eternal purpose of God, and finally, I want us to realize today that nothing can stop God from accomplishing his eternal purpose. Nothing can stop God from accomplishing his eternal purpose. We said a moment ago that Paul stated that God's eternal purpose was conceived before the world began. And he states to the Ephesians that it's being carried out now. The reason they're in Christ is because 
this eternal purpose has been accomplished in that, but the assumption of the passage is that this plan will go forward. And God's not wringing his hands wondering if the plan's going to work out. He's not wondering if, uh, really, in fact, Christ is going to sum up all things in him. He's not wondering whether or not things in heaven and things on earth will be reconciled to his son. The eternal purpose of God is carried out. It's being carried out now. Nothing can stop God from accomplishing his eternal purpose. This isn't by coincidence, y'all. The fact that you have been saved, the fact that you have been drawn into the church, the fact that you have come to know the Lord, it's not by coincidence. It is a result of a plan that was conceived before the foundations of the world. It is a result of the eternal purpose of God. The fact that you personally were converted was simply the next step in this great plan. And I wonder, is there someone in your life, a lost friend, a lost relative, whose conversion will be just the further step in this great eternal plan? If God is determined to save someone, There is nothing that will stop him. If it is his eternal purpose, his eternal will to save your unbelieving parent or your unbelieving spouse, your unbelieving child, God will accomplish that. It depends on his will, his purpose, his determination to save. And he always fulfills his purposes. Nothing can stop our God from accomplishing what he has set out to accomplish. Well, now in closing, we've seen the origin of our salvation, that it's grounded in the love of God the grace of God, and especially the eternal purpose and plan of God. I want to share just three lines of application, and then we'll we'll be done today. Three lines of application. First of all, that salvation is supremely the result of God's will should be grounds for great encouragement, assurance, and joy. The fact that our salvation depends on the will of God and not on the will of man should be a source of assurance source of confidence, a source of joy. My salvation rests on the eternal purpose of God. Can it fail? My salvation is contingent upon what God has done through Christ. That's a safe place to rest your salvation. Now here I want to make a crucial distinction though. It should be encouraging to us, wonderful to us, assuring to us to know that our salvation rests on what God has done in Christ, on His eternal purpose and His eternal will. But never mistake the grounds for salvation and the grounds for faith. Our faith does not rest in election. True, our salvation rests there, God's determination to save us. But our faith rests in Christ. We're not looking to the possibility that God may have chose us before the foundations of the world. We always look to Jesus. Our faith rests in Him. We look to Him. We cry out to Him. Now, having said that, having made that distinction, it is wonderful to us that our salvation does rest in the eternal purposes of God. It doesn't rest in my ability to keep this thing going. It doesn't, inv- it doesn't rest on my ability to just do me. It doesn't rest on my ability just to, just to, 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 to track right and to act right and to uh, carry out the, the appropriate behavior of a Christian. My salvation rests in what God has purposed to do in me and he who began a good work in you will complete it. He will see you through. He will see you to the last day, finally saved in glory. Our salvation does not rest in our fickle will, our ability to perform, but it rests in the purposes of God. Though my will is fickle, though it's volatile, though it's inconstant, though it's undependable, though it's unsteady, though it's so fair weather, 
God is not so. He has purposed to save His people and He will see them saved. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. But now the second line of application. Second line of application. Because our salvation is part of a larger plan of exalting Christ and reconciling all things to Him, the glory of Christ is to be the chief end of our lives. The glory of Christ is the chief end of our lives. I know for some of you this is old news, but for some of you this may be paradigm shifting. You have to know that Christ is at the center of the universe, not you. God's eternal purpose is not merely that you would be eternally happy. It is that Christ would be eternally glorified. And praise God that your happiness is caught up in this great goal of glorifying Christ. My happiness and God's glory through Christ are not at odds with one another. But as my heart is thrilled with the glory of Christ, and as I'm finding my soul satisfaction and delight in Him, I'm made eternally happy, and God is glorified. I mean, how wonderful that the Lord set up the universe this way. I get all the spiritual blessings. He gets all the glory. Amen. Christ is at the center of the universe and His glory being united to Him and satisfied in Him. That is the the joy of our hearts. And our delight in God is in seeing Him glorified through His Son, Jesus Christ. Someone asked me recently, is it a proper motivation? Is it okay for me to come to Jesus because He makes me happy? Yes. Yes. If you're happy in Christ, if you're satisfied in Him, if you find your soul's delight in the Lord Jesus Christ and seeing Him exalted as Lord of the universe and glorified and worshipped by men and women from all over the world, yes. Your joy, your happiness in Christ is a perfect motivation for coming to Him. Our happiness, our joy, paradise with Christ is not at all at odds with having Christ at the center of the universe receiving glory from every single man and woman. This is the eternal purpose of God, that we would get the blessings and that Christ would get the glory. But now thirdly and finally, because God's eternal purposes cannot be thwarted, you cannot lose your salvation. Because God's eternal purposes cannot be thwarted, you cannot lose your salvation. Brothers and sisters, those who believe on the Lord Jesus, how do you know that you will have faith Monday morning? How do you know that you will believe? Listen, it's not just because you have the wherewithal. That's just me and I do how I do. I've always had faith. I'll wake up tomorrow with faith. That's what I do. No, no, no. You will have faith tomorrow because God has done a work in Christ. Your faith rests on the eternal purpose of God, that purpose that can't be thwarted. And the fact that this work that's begun in us, the fact that it will be completed, depends on what God has done through the Lord Jesus Christ. And that purpose can't be thwarted. My faith, my will, my plan for my life is fickle. But Christ's will cannot be thwarted. God's will in Christ cannot be stopped. And you will maintain your salvation through your faith in Christ, through what He has done. It's His eternal purpose that will see you through. This also means that we should be confident in evangelism. If God determines to save someone, He'll do it. No matter how poor my weak articulation of the gospel is, God will use that to save somebody. If God determines to save, He will have His man, He will have His woman. God will fulfill His purposes. 
Right, what right do we have to come here to Winston-Salem and to spread the gospel and to think that people are actually going to believe it? I mean, Paul, pathetic little Paul in the hall of Tyrannus is talking about this man, Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified, this convict, and, and he actually expects that men and women are going to believe him and come to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. Why? He had seen the risen Christ. And God had revealed to him that he was going to carry out an eternal purpose of saving men and women. Listen, that's our confidence too. Mm-hmm. If God has people in this city, he's going to save them. And we should have confidence in sharing the gospel. That God will use the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ as he has millions of times throughout history to save his people. And all we must do is loose our tongues and open our mouths. And God will do the work. But also, because salvation is of God, we should never cease to cry out to him. That he would work, that he would move to save men and women. You have someone in your life, you think there's no way this person will ever believe. Cry out to God, because salvation rests on his eternal purpose. Against all odds, from a human standpoint, he will overcome, he will conquer. But you must cry out to him, recognizing salvation depends on the Lord. It belongs to him. He is mighty to save, and so I need him to come, him to work, and him to bring about salvation. I want to conclude by saying this. If you're here today, and you're outside of Christ, I want to tell you that this is the eternal plan of God. He determined before the world began to send His Son, the Lord Jesus, into the world. And it was part of this plan that Jesus would go to the cross, that He would die for the sins of His people, and He rose and defeated the grave for the same. And God has been carrying out for thousands of years now His eternal plan of drawing men and women to Himself. He was doing it in Ephesus a little less than 2,000 years ago, and He's doing it now. He's doing it today. He's doing it even among us. God will accomplish His purposes. And I tell you today that you can be included in this great plan of redemption, this great story of what God is doing in the world. You can be part of that. You must come and believe. You must come and repent. You must come and follow Jesus. And you will be included in this great work that God has been doing for 2,000 years now in uniting men and women to the Lord Jesus. You can be caught up in the great story, the great plan of redemptive history. I call you today, through Christ, to believe to repent and to follow the Lord Jesus and to be caught up in this great, grand, redemptive plan of God. Let's pray together. Our Father, what you have done in Christ is wonderful to us. What you have accomplished by your will, your eternal purpose before the worlds begin is glorious to us. Lord, we're so thankful, those of us who know you, that you loved us before the world began, that you lavished your grace upon us in time, and that you accomplished your eternal plan in us and in including us in what you are doing in the world. We thank you that you have moved to save, that you have accomplished your great plan in our hearts of drawing us to the Lord Jesus Christ and uniting us to him. And Lord, Christ is at the center of Our universe, He is at the center of the universe. He is the focal point and climax of human history. And the great desire of our hearts, what makes us eternally happy, is to see Him glorified. And it is with that motivation, that desire, that we pray that you would move in this place and in this community to draw more men and women in, to include them in this great plan, this great purpose of God. That they too would be saved. That they too would praise God with their lips. And that we would see them eternally happy and Christ eternally glorified through the inheritance of lost men and women who are saved and united to Him. 
pray that you do that for some now, even in this room, who don't know you. Move upon them now to draw them to Christ through repentance and faith. Would you do it, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Let us stand together and sing all I have.